0: Hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you missed the Exiles of Babylon conference, the video version of that conference is for sale. You can go to TheologyintheRaw.com to check it out. You can purchase one of the sessions, two of the sessions, three or all uh, all four of the different sessions uh, of that conference. We talked about race and racism, sexuality, gender, different Christian views of hell and Christianity, unity of the church and politics thealgenrod.com, all the information is there. Okay, so I'm recording this introduction before my interview, which usually I record the introduction after, but I'm going to have on uh, somebody who I've never met. I've only met him over email. Um, Christian Gonzalez is a, the Young Adult, Minister, Young Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. He's a graduate of Wheaton College, Azusa Pacific University and Luther Seminary. Um, he is also a licensed associate marriage and family therapist in Arizona, committed to the upbuilding of the church as a family that facilitates the formation of youth and young adults into the image of Christ. I primarily wanted to have Christian on. We we connected through a friend of a friend, and um, he you know grew up evangelical, went to evangelical schools, and now is a member of the Greek Orthodox Church in America. And I'm like, well, that's fascinating. I want to hear all about that. So I think I'm gonna call him here in just a couple minutes. I think I'm just gonna say, hey, Christian, okay, do your best to convert me to the Greek Orthodox Church. Like I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated as somebody who is raised evangelical, is now part of the Greek Orthodox Church. That wasn't his original heritage. I'm curious why. Why? Because I've I've I feel like I come across quite a few people who have moved from traditional evangelicalism to a more liturgical context. I've got a few friends actually that are part of uh, some form of uh, Orthodox church, the Orthodox church. And the tiny bit that I've dabbled in Orthodox theology, I've been really fascinated slash impressed with it. Um, And sometimes people, when they hear me talk, um, they're like, yeah, you sound a little bit more orthodox, a little more Eastern in in some ways in which you approach theology. So I'm like, well, I don't know what that means, but I want to learn more. So hopefully Christian will help me learn more, and maybe, just maybe, um, after in the next hour, I will become Greek Orthodox. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. So uh, please welcome to the show for the first time, Christian Gonzalez. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with Christian Gonzalez. Christian, all right, you have one hour to convert me to the Greek Orthodox Church. Ready, set,
1: go. (laughs) Okay, well, wow. I mean, I guess the first question would be the question of Jesus. What do you really want, Preston? What do you want (laughs) most deeply in your soul? If you were to die today, yeah. where would you go? <laughs> oh, man. I would go to Athens. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I would go to In N Out. Just one last stop. <laughs> oh, man. Are you an In N Out fan? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. So some good.
0: Some people are. I mean, there is a California nostalgic to it, you know, like it's part of my homeland. Um, but it still is so good. Like, there's this. Yes. It's like they lace it with some kind of like In-N-Out crack or something. Like there's a, a mm-hmm. flavor you can only get at an In-N-Out burger that when I cross the border into California, I'm like, we go straight to the nearest In-N-Out. It could be like eight in the morning. Doesn't Well, they're not open that early. But
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be willing to try. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been there at 1030 in the morning and there's lines out the
1: door getting burgers at 1030. I love it. Yeah. In and Out has like that distinct smell. Like you step out of yeah. your car and you can smell the onions cooking or something. I don't know what it is, but yeah. you just go, there's an In and Out nearby. You yeah. just know. You
0: and know? The people, you feel it. Some people like the fries. Some people say they're not that great. I, the fries are, they're, fr- they taste like potatoes. I mean, they, they taste like so fresh. They're so good.
1: Yeah. I mean, it- They have like a four minute half-life though. You know, you kind of have to like, you have to get right in there and just go for the fries and then you're, you're good. If you go, go for the fries first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Tell us a bit about your
0: background. Um, Primarily, as it relates to you know being raised or at least
1: being part of an evangelical church, and then uh,
0: converting. is converting the right term? I mean, it, it sounds like you weren't a Christian before or something. Or
1: I know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's always like the the funny one too. But that definitely is kind of the the vernacular that, that is used when someone transitions, I guess, from like okay. evangelical kind of upbringing or Catholic upbringing to uh, to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, people will describe that's themselves right. as converts. Okay, um, to okay. orthodoxy. And then there's kind of a whole nother group of folks who've grown up in the Orthodox Church that refer to themselves as cradle Orthodox. So there's kind of this like cradle and convert thing that cradle. that happens. But in some sense, aren't, we're all converts, right? Aren't we all always converting to follow <laughs> Christ ever more closely? Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I grew up uh, going to, so I my home, like my first church that I, that I remember from the time of being little uh, is actually the Anaheim Vineyard. Um, so I grew up with you know, under Pastor John Wimber, kind of in like all of that stuff that was that was going on at at the Anaheim Vineyard. I remember people rolling around on the floor, um, being smitten by the Holy Spirit. People prophesying in the middle of the thing. There was also people barking like dogs and falling over. And I mean, I, like that was kind of the world that I that I grew up in. So I guess kind of like right out of the gate, you know, I had a sense of the power of the Holy Spirit and like the presence of the Holy Spirit. Cause I, I do think that some of those more charismatic Pentecostally traditions really have that well, you know, they really, they really convey that super, um, viscerally. And I think you get a felt sense for like, God is up to something and, and doing something. So I grew up in, in that church and then just kind of over time, uh, started moving. I mean, I'm going to give you like super cliff notes here and then we can unpack whatever you want to unpack, I guess. Then in maybe like middle school, I started walking to a friend's Christian church that was just down the road from my house because I had a bunch of friends from middle school that were that were going there. Uh, And so that was a little bit more traditional, less, you know, um, people being smitten by the spirit and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was, yeah, it was good. I mean, it was happy to be with friends. And I think that was when I started kind of being more interested in my faith as something that was mine you know i wanted to like kind of do do things that felt i guess i wouldn't use the, the word authentic probably as a 12 or 13 year old but i think i wanted something that felt more authentic mm-hmm. and just over time uh, i ended up getting really into the left behind series like that was a really big thing for me okay. when i was in like middle school and like the early years of high school and mm-hmm. i think i even yeah. tried to kind of like do my own dissecting the book of revelation and wow. coming up with my own timeline of things <laughs> That's like you know behind,
0: I, scary, man. Every time, I remember going up, and every time I'd call my mom, like, "Mom, Mom, Mom." There were times I was like, "Ah, I'm left behind." You know, it's like, so scary. Like, my mom's just gonna get snatched up because I knew she was a Christian. I wasn't sure about me, you know. And
1: yeah, it was scary, man. Yeah, Those it, books are frightening. So <laughs> anyway, sorry. So I was so in, I was so into this at one point. I must have been fourteen or fifteen when the movie came out. Okay. And our next door neighbor. Uh, had, had owned it or something. So we went over to the, his house to watch it, my family and I, and he ended up falling asleep while we were watching <laughs> the movie. And so we all kind of, you know, didn't want to wake him up on our way out and we snuck out and we got back to our house and we were like, oh my gosh, what if we took all, all, all of the clothes that we were just wearing and went and put them on the couch, like in his <laughs> no, house? You did. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, totally, totally. So we all like <laughs> changed our clothes, took the clothes that we had been wearing and I went and just put them where we had been sitting on his couch, and just waited for him to wake up. And then maybe like you know, 20 minutes later, the dude wakes up and gives us a call, and is just dying laughing. You know, he was like, "I swear, I, I was like, I blinked my eyes, and you guys were gone." <laughs> like, so is that how did what did he think the rapture happened? For a minute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> oh my God, we, we were just trying to scare him into repentance. You know, yeah, we wanted, hey, we want whatever it takes. Know, So yeah, I mean that that was where where I was where I was at, and then I started attending an evangelical free church, and I started kind of having some thoughts and experiences and questions that kind of left me wondering uh, whether or not, at least from what I understood Christianity to be, um, if the whole thing was kind of bogus, and it just kind of didn't really match with. Uh, the world that we actually live in. Because I started feeling like, and through some of the, you know, like every good conversion story, there was this a girl that I liked in high school, and like, things kind of fell apart with her. And I was left wondering, like, and, you know, does any of this Christianity stuff have anything to do with like, the kind of person that I become in this life? You know, like, is or is it just about hanging in there, And then when you die, you get to go to like the party in the sky if you said the right magic prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, that's kind of just what I understood it to be. And um, especially when I was like in high school, I think when people start thinking more abstractly as adolescents, uh, they begin to look around and become aware of the keen, keenly aware of the suffering that other people are experiencing. And when you're told again and again, again at church that it's like, You know, you got to be looking for like the Shekinah glory and, you you know, it's it's all like joy. And if you feel any like sadness about anything in the world, then like you're maybe not believing hard enough. And then it's it just sort of feels like the whole purpose of everything is just to wait around until you get to escape at the end. Mm. Um, And it just started feeling like that's not that's not how life feels to me, though. Mm. You know, like life just feels tough and hard. And yet there's got to be some meaning in that like in the toughness and in the difficulty. And so then I started thinking like, ah, maybe this is all just bogus. And then my English teacher, my junior year, he and I are still um, close friends. Uh, He had just become Orthodox himself the year prior. And so I was kind of telling him, you know, this all seems bogus to me. And he was like, well, I could probably show you a better way. And I said, like, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. (laughs) And Uh, He started talking to me about how, like, this actually is the purpose of the, because at least in my growing up, to me, the cross always felt like this kind of unfortunately necessary thing just to get to the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Like, it it itself was just a, like, ah, we just kind of had to go through it. Like, Jesus had to do it, but it didn't have any clear bearing on, like, the rest of my life or what it did in the world or anything like that, it just sort of seemed like the unfortunately necessary thing that God had to use. So I, when he started talking to me about like, no, the reason Jesus goes to the cross is because all of us are already there. And so he goes there to, to meet us and to find us that we are, we're held captive by Hmm. death. We're held captive by pain, by our own mortality. Um, and God desires to be so close to us that it's, you know, like, um, in 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 English, we had read the story of, of Orpheus and Persephone, right? And like Orpheus has to go down into the underworld to rescue his bride, Persephone, because she's being held captive by Hades. And he started talking to me about this. And he's like, the, the difference is that Jesus actually succeeds. <laughs> like Christ actually succeeds by de- descending into death and pulling us out of the grave with him. Um, and suddenly things started making a little bit more, more sense to me in that, in that regard that it actually sort of dignifies and gives meaning to the suffering that we experience, um, while also redeeming it and, uh, you know, giving us hope. I'm, I'm curious, is that why that descent into Hades is part of the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. So we actually, in, in, in our, in, in our tradition we don't use the apostles creed so we we oh, use okay. the like the nice constantinople creed that okay. was kind of like you know late late 300s or whatever okay um but yeah that, that's the that's the idea of like the descent to hell um being about going to loose the captives that okay. are that are there that there isn't some sort of you know angry wrathful god that needs to be appeased by a blood sacrifice um but rather that from the very beginning humanity has been held captive mm-hmm. by, by sin and death. You know, at least when I was again, kind of growing up evangelical, the language that was used was all very juridical, you know, that there was the kind of like, you're Ger- guilty. You said
0: juridical, juridical. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah le- like legal. Kind of like courtroom yeah, legal, yeah. Of all, like all of that kind of stuff. But when I started coming to the Orthodox world, the, the language is much more about like therapeutic stuff. It's more therapy and um, this idea that we've been infected with a disease and Christ comes as a healer, mm-hmm. primarily, mm-hmm. Um, and a liberator. Like that, that's what He's here to do: is to heal yeah. us and set us free from the fetters that bind us. Well, it's interesting that, that, the,
0: the reason why I brought up the Apostles' Creed is, like, I think most evangelicals, when they read it, it all sounds really important and essential, except for that one part. It's kind of like parsley on a steak. It's kind of like, what's this? Like, get this out of here. Like, what? We don't the center. Yeah. Hades like that that's not part of our gospel story. And Christ descended to Hades and preached victory and set the captives free. Most people don't preach that gospel. Or they get to 1 Peter right. 3 and they're like, what do we do? This is a weird passage rather than this is an essential part of the story. Um Anyway, yeah. um and, I I will we'll get back to kind of the theological components I think, but keep Sure. keep going with your story.
1: Yeah, so just one of the things that was you know, as I was talking with my English teacher, uh it, it started making a little bit more sense to me. And like I said, I was really into the left behind stuff. And the church that I had been attending before I became Orthodox, this Evangelical Free Church, uh, the pastor, I don't know if he was like the head pastor or what, but he was super, super strong dispensationalist, like way, way, way into dispensationalism. Um, talked about the rapture a lot, talked about all all these different kinds of things. And the church that I even went to the way that it was constructed, had this kind of like conical thing. And they, it was called the rapture tunnel. So I guess the idea was that like, you were going to be <laughs> siphoned, filtered directly into the heavens as, as the Lord returns. So did like, you pull, I you're
0: a pull your joke on him or not. <laughs> you
1: know, <laughs> it would have been a good idea. But as I started looking into dispensationalism a little bit more kind of because I started getting, you know, the appetite for theological questions and and all of that when I was about 16. And I started doing some reading on dispensationalism and kind of realized, oh, this whole thing is very, a very new belief that dates back to John Nelson Darby. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, seeing that he got so much of his theology from his sleeping prophetess, like there was some, there started to be some problems to me in this whole thing Mm -hmm. that like he was basically drawing a theology construct, from what I understand, again, I'm going to not pretend like to be some expert on dispensationalism or anything like that. But from what I understand, a lot of the theology he was drawing was based on the dreams of some woman that he he would have conversations with and he would then interpret eschatological issues through the lens of this, this woman's dreams. And as I began to understand it, from what I could see, it seemed like what the idea was, was that God is trying to work the salvation of the nation of Israel, And John the Baptist and Jesus were going to be a really important part of that. But John the Baptist was there to pave the way for Jesus to kind of actually restore this earthly kingdom of Israel. But John the Baptist went and got himself killed and so kind of like ruined plan A a little bit. And so then the cross enters as almost as like plan B Hmm. for like Jesus to redeem the people that, you know, were supposed to be redeemed through the establishment of this nation of Israel But because John got himself killed, Jesus couldn't have the way paved for him the correct way. And so he goes to the cross, instituting this dispensation of grace, which happens in the church. So like the church kind of becomes this parenthetical Mm -hmm. moment in the history of Israel. And so when Jesus finally is going to return to save Israel, that's when that parentheses of the church is pulled out. And now like the story is completed for Israel. At least that was what I understood it. And maybe, yeah. maybe I'm again, totally misreading what dispensationalism is. That,
0: that does. I mean, I was raised strong dispensational context. I, I didn't really pay t- too close attention when I was in it as a kid, at least. But that's, that does capture a form of dispensationalism for sure. M- more of a classical form, um, which I would say most contemporary dispensationalists probably would not hold to that. But I think that is kind of, so, from my from my memory, it sounds like an accurate description of a f- older form of dispensationalism for sure. And, and that was
1: what, you know, whatever it was, that was what I sort of understood this guy to be mm. teaching. And I went to the pastor when, one day, and I think this was probably the moment where where everything kind of turned on its head for me. Um, you know, after a service where there was just like a, just a real spicy guitar solo during communion. You know, I mean, they were just f- full on Van Halen that that <laughs> communion service. And I had been to an Orthodox church like once or twice already. And I was like, something feels different <laughs> about <laughs> this versus the way that they do it and I went up to him afterwards the pastor and I said like so I've been I've been looking into dispensationalism and I have I have some questions about it it seems to me like it's a first of all a pretty new theology and it seems like some of the things that it teaches are a little bizarre to me and I'm like it seems like it says that and everything that I explained just now I said that to him and he just goes oh <laughs> foolish boy don't you know that dispensationalism is a tradition that was taught by the apostles and has been around for whatever, whatever? No. And I remember even in that moment thinking, like, if I was a pastor and some 16-year-old kid came up to me mm-hmm. and said, "Look, I've been I've been reading about dispensationalism and I have some questions," I don't know that I would have responded, "You foolish boy." No, <laughs> well, he literally I, said that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying that was kind of the vibe he was giving off, but he. Oh said- no no. No, no, yeah, he he's he said that I was like foolish for having these these questions and not understanding. And I was like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think I like being here. <laughs> you know, because, like these questions that I had, at least my English teacher took seriously mm-hmm. and uh, really wanted to like walk with me into them and let mm-hmm. them linger. But uh, just to be dismissed outright, I think was such a mm-hmm. formative <laughs> part of my story, you know, an important part that sent me going like, Wow, this you sure seem defensive about this mm-hmm. this thing that you really, really, mm-hmm. you know, believe to be true. So, yeah. I don't know. Wow. That was a that was a weird thing. So I started going to the church, the Orthodox Church, full time, and uh, basically, you know, had this moment in the liturgy where, um, because part of the way that the service goes is. And it was, I mean, it was so different press than, anything that I had grown up with. I mean, in the first service I went to, I remember walking in and like smelling the incense and seeing the icons and hearing this kind of, uh, really bizarre middle Eastern sounding music. And it just was like, I don't, I have, I don't understand anything about what this is, you know, where are the drums, where are the guitars, where, um, why is everybody, why is the, even the, you know, the priest up there, he like, he's facing, I'm seeing the back of his head rather than like, you know, him there with a microphone and a Hawaiian shirt with two buttons undone. And like, I mean, there was just like so many things that I was not familiar with at all. And I remember feeling like I had gotten kind of kicked in the senses. It was just like, whoa, it was overwhelming um, and beautiful. But as the service goes on, there's like these supplications and every single one of them ends with, uh, you know, one would be like, for the peace of the world, let us pray to the Lord. And then the people respond, Lord have mercy. And then it's like, for the health and salvation of whatever. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. And it's just again and again and again, let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. I remember about 10 Lord have mercies in being like, man, how, like, how many times are we gonna do this? And I, it was this weird moment because I wasn't even fully Orthodox yet, but I looked at the, the icon of John the Baptist and just had this overwhelming sense that I was being asked, how many times do you think you need to ask for mercy? Oh wow. And I was like, Mm. okay, all right. You're right. Like, yeah. Like once once is enough. I don't know. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Three times, like it's an infinite amount of times, right. An infinite amount of mercy we need. Mm. Um, especially the way that Orthodox understand mercy. It's not just about getting off the hook, you know, and being forgiven. It's this like loving kindness, this presence of God, um, this desire that God has to move toward us, so when we say Lord have mercy, it's this kind of saying like Lord do the thing that you want to do. We're trying to be open to that. Come, come be with us. Come, let us be with you. Uh, that that's what we understand by have mercy, yeah, not like yeah. please don't kill me. Yeah.
0: Wow. Can you like unpack that service a little more? I mean, um, yeah, is that a typical Orthodox service, and what
1: does that yeah, what does that look like? Our tradition. Every Sunday we do um, basically the same the same service. You know there are some parts of it that kind of change depending on the feast day so uh, you know a couple Sundays from now we're gonna be celebrating the Feast of Pentecost and there will be different songs that are that are put in different places kind of as a way to commemorate Pentecost for example mm-hmm. um, but the general structure of the thing is always the same and you can you can look up online you know the, the Divine Liturgy of st. John Chrysostom and you'll find you uh, just the, the whole format of it. And there's some prayers that are constant, but, um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is basically about gathering to hear the scriptures proclaimed mm-hmm. and to receive Holy communion, which we do every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's basically the the thrust of it. I mean, there's some, there's a lot of different moving parts. Are there any, is there anything in particular you're so like you uh, just like, what
0: would be it, if it's an hour long or something? What is that look like? Uh, is there like some songs up front, and then scripture reading, then a homily, and
1: then yeah, the Eucharist? or uh... Yeah, good question. So, about 90, 90 to 95% of the service is sung um, all, all together by, whether it's by the priest and the deacon or the people and the choir. Um, I mean, it is a, it is a, it basically reads as a play. It's like a dialogue back and forth all the time, all the time, all the time. So, it begins with the priest raising the the gospel above his head, and making the sign of the cross, saying, "Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever and unto the end of the ages. Amen." And well, actually, the people respond, "Amen." Mm-hmm. And then from there, we pray for the world. We pray for you know seasonable weather. We pray all those different Lord have mercies that I was you know mm-hmm. telling you about for um, the release of captives, for you know the the civil authorities and things like this. Just everything that you can you can name. Uh, and then from there, there are some some hymns. One to the Mother of God, one to uh, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and then kind of one whatever commemorating the feast of the day might mm-hmm. be. And then, uh, and this is the one that our our kids always love. We sing what's called the Trisagion hymn, which just means thrice holy. You know, the three, the thrice holy hymn in which we sing, holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. And it's really a beautiful beautiful hymn. And then after that is done, there's a reading from the epistle, then a reading from the gospel, Mm -hmm. and at least at our parish, our our priest will do like a children's homily, which is really cool. So all the kids go up and like yeah. sit at his feet and it's always, you know, a really sweet thing. And usually the parents are the ones who get more out of it because they feel a little bit less on guard, I think <laughs> <laughs> He's talking to the kids yeah. and we're like, Oh, um, that's, I feel like that's for me because yeah. it probably is. Uh, and then yet yeah, some more singing. And then we move into uh, what is the second part of the liturgy, um, which is called the Liturgy of the Faithful. So so back in the day, after the reading of the gospel and the homily, often people who had not yet been baptized or chrismated into the church were asked to leave because this was the idea of like, this is the holy mystery that we don't want to let everybody in on. You know, like this is kind of like the best kept secret. I mean, and this we're talking like way back when. Now everyone stays. We don't kick anybody out of the church.
0: So tr- traditionally, um, if you weren't baptized, you were asked to leave interesting okay
1: yeah yeah so they if you were what was called a catechumen you know and you were entering into like catechesis or whatever at that point yeah the catechumens were asked to like go stand outside and wait around while everyone else had communion and
0: stuff but that's similar to like when the baptist church has a members only meeting after church or whatever it's like only yeah I mean, only certain people are invited. If you're not there, you have to leave. I mean, <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so that's how how it plays out, and then everyone communes um, again, baptized and chrismated Orthodox Christians. So um, if you haven't been baptized or chrismated into the church, then you know you're you're asked to to abstain from receiving communion. Okay. And that's pretty much how the service ends. It's like we take communion, and then. Okay. There's maybe like two more prayers and then it's let us depart in peace. <laughs> so so there is no like traditional sermon though. I mean, other than the homily for the kids or. So that is one of the interesting things to, um, well, again, at our parish, after everything's done, the kids go to Sunday school after communion and then our priest will do like an adult homily as oh, okay. well. Okay. Um, but even then, like sermons are maybe like 12, 13, 14 minutes long. Like they are, it's, they are not the central part of. The, the Eucharistic gathering, you know, the, the central part of it is is all heading toward the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, and that's the fulfillment of everything that we So is, would
0: you say it's almost just flipped on its head like a traditional evangelical church? Communion would occupy the role that a homily would in the Orthodox Church and vice versa? Um, yeah. I mean, I've been in churches yeah. before where they didn't do communion for six months or something. And that would be, I would imagine your priest would probably just be off his rocker. Like, what is that? Wait, so... I thought it was a Christian church. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and that's not just, you know, the the local tradition at my parish. Like, that is what Eastern Orthodox Christians do. Like, on Sundays, every Orthodox church that you go to is going to do the same liturgy. Every Eastern Orthodox church, I should say. You know, there's a whole other set of Orthodox churches that are not considered Eastern Orthodox, but are called Oriental Orthodox. And um, they do a different liturgy, but they would be doing their same liturgy every every Sunday as well. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to get to some theological questions, but
0: um, I have so many questions right now. Let's just hang on the service for a little bit. The ecclesiology. What are some things just for you personally that you find really compelling, attractive, uh, meaningful in an Orthodox service um, versus maybe an evangelical service? And are there any things that you miss about maybe like an evangelical service that like when you go to an evangelical church, like, ah, I miss this or that, or, um, if there is any, I'm going to force anything mm-hmm. to you, but yeah. What are the, what are the things you really like about the
1: Orthodox service? Yeah. So again, great question. Um, so one of the prayers that uh, is said at the beginning of most services, uh, is titled the prayer to the Holy spirit. And it's a, re- it's a really, really beautiful one to me. It goes like this. "O heavenly King, O comforter, the spirit of truth who art everywhere present and filling all things treasury of blessings and the giver of life come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls O oh gracious lord mm-hmm. and i love that prayer and to me everything that orthodoxy is and does liturgically sacramentally ascetically like whatever you you want to like pick a thing that orthodoxy does is meant to fulfill and live out that prayer the idea that this heavenly king is everywhere present and filling all things, all things, you know, we don't. It, so I, I came across an article recently about earthworms that are invading America that can jump a foot in the air. Oh, my gosh. That freaks me out. Have you heard about this? No. And they can also clone themselves. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. Yeah, no, bad news. They're clone them. themselves? <laughs> yes. 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 They're like space age jumping worms. I don't I, I don't even know what to do about it. It's, it's not good. <laughs> Talk about a change of direction. I, I, we can spend the rest so of the time the on that, I'm but let's let's
0: keep keep the truck moving here. The reason
1: I'm saying that is because like in Orthodox theology, we would have to say, what does this reveal to us about God? Like we really believe all things, even these jumping earthworms, you know, are something that we have to to look for uh, as a way to to come to know God in and through that which is created. So the, the liturgy itself, to me, like when I, when I look at it and I go into church, um, at least our parish, has this beautiful temple where there's an icon of the face of Jesus Christ up in the, up in the dome, like it's the top of everything. And from there, everything reaches down around us and, and encapsulates us. And I, when I go there, I have a very visceral sense of what it means to be in Christ, You know, I think that we often think of Christ in us, but like, what does it mean to be in Christ? And when you when I walk into church and I see the face of Jesus above the head of the church, and His arms reaching down around us, and I have like I look around and I go, oh, here we all are in the body of Christ. Like, it's a viscerally felt sense. It's not just some thing I have to like emotionally or Mm. uh, mentally construct for myself, but it actually gives me an image and an icon. Of what that means and looks like, much in you know that story of like the two young fish that are swimming, and that old fish walks up to it, swims up to them and says, "Morning, boys, the water's sure is nice today, huh? And swims off. And the two fish say, "What's water? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this idea that like it's the it is the environment that we're in, that Christ is the environment that we swim in. The love of God is everything that we swim always. Whether we're aware of it, or not. Like it's the it's the world through which we move, and so when I look around in church and I see the candles that are lit with fire, and I see the baptismal font holding water, and I see the incense which you know fills the air, and I see the uh, bread and wine put on the table, the elements of the earth, you know, I see fire, water, wind, and earth, and I see that everything is held in Christ. Everything is held together by Him and becomes a participation in His body. That it's not somehow separate from him. Distinct, yes, but separate, no. Hmm. And that, to me, is, is the beauty uh, of orthodoxy, where it says that there is a place for everything in the created order, that everything can bring us closer to Christ. And then, of course, what do we see when we look around in the pews around us? We see our brothers and our sisters, images and icon bearers themselves, images of Christ. Hmm. And we know this because we look at the you know the icons of the saints, and they have this you know mm-hmm. a little halo thing and a lot of times when we see those halos we think like ah oh, the church is putting these people up as like you know somehow like the superheroes of the faith like they were like bit by some radioactive jesus and like now are like have these like cool superpowers and stuff but really what we're looking at is an icon of Christ still um, but it's just Christ in that person. This is what Christ looks like with the face of John Chrysostom. This is what Christ looks like in the face of Basil the Great. Mm-hmm. This is what Christ looks like in the face of Andrew the Apostle, whatever, like whoever, mm-hmm. whatever saint you want to kind of bring up. We see like, oh, this is the Christ coming forth from them, mm-hmm. Them, mm-hmm. them radiating Christ to us. And so now we know, mm-hmm. oh, Christ is actually in my brother and sister next to me. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I had a talk to... Man, this is years ago. As somebody at the Evangelical Theological Society, I think he gave a paper on why he converted from I think Southern Baptist to Orthodox, and um, and that that was years. It was years ago, maybe about ten years ago. And I, I back then I had the assumption of like, no, evangelicals are the ones that are like biblically centered, Christ centered, and everything else is just a bunch of meaningless liturgy. You're just going in and checking a box, but there's little to no actual discipleship and I remember him saying, "Like what drew me was the Christ-centeredness. Like it was so Christ-centered, and it threw me off. So like, no, no, no. Even what do you mean? Like you left Christ-centeredness because you left the Baptist Church, whatever. <laughs> and he started yeah. explaining it and like how Christ is just so woven into the fabric of everything that is done, top to bottom and everything. And I was like, wow, that that sounds compelling. Um, is that would that be an accurate description? And would you would you resonate with that? I mean." <laughs> Yeah,
1: 100%. I mean, I think so, yes. But I've also been doing it for 20 years. You right. know what I mean? So, like, I, I, I see it and I know it, and um, I, I mean, I work in, in ministry for the Greek Orthodox Church, and so it's it's what I think about and where I live. But I could see very easily how it could sort of just end up being sort of like a, a testament to ethnicity, yeah. Um, a testament to historicity uh you know and this is one of the, i think the big critiques that i think that i even have of 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 orthodoxy and you know you asked me like other things that maybe i miss about evangelicalism um one of the things that i do miss about evangelicalism and i love my evangelical brothers and sisters for this is their openness to the idea of how god moves and acts in the world now you know that there's this like what is god doing what is he inviting us to what are we what are you know what how are we kind of trying to be sensitive to the movement of god in our lives and I think that what happens sometimes a little bit too much in like the Orthodox world is we rely so much on the fact that our, our faith is 2000 years old. Like, like that's kind of what we end up okay. saying as if we use like, it's our, you know, our antiquity that makes us authentic. Okay. Like, well, we're, we've been around the longest, so we're the, we're the real church. Um, which to me is like, I don't know if you, if you really want to like say that like, you know, something being antiquated is what makes it authentic. Yeah. then I would say like Judaism is probably more, more authentic <laughs> religion and even Hinduism is more authentic. Right. So like, there's gotta be something more than our antiquity that makes us authentic. And to me, it's, it's the, it's the testimony of the saints that makes us authentic. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you go back to Tertullian, the church isn't built on its, on its historicity. The church is built on the blood of its martyrs. Right? Like this is, it's the witness of the church that makes it authentic.
0: What would you say are some of the main, and this can spill over into theology. Actually, let, let's start here. Um, when, Cause you've been talking Orthodox church and Greek Orthodox church. Can you give us a brief explanation of the differences between Orthodox church, Eastern Orthodox church, Russian, Greek, Ethiopian, Indian, like help us th- for somebody to just pretend like we know nothing about this. Like everything East of the West
1: is like, off in ethereal land, we don't even know what's going on with Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, okay. So, maybe the, the best way to think about it is that the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Oriental Orthodox churches are sort of like two brothers that have a kind of a falling out, a disagreement over a car accident. <laughs> it's like the best way to think about it. Um, so you, you go back to, you know, the, the fourth ecumenical council in Chalcedon and there's questions about like the nature of Jesus Christ, right? And is he God? Is he man? Is he God and man? Is he, Mm -hmm. how does, how exactly Mm -hmm. does, does this work? And the best way I think that I could probably explain it is that the Eastern churches say it one way, the cop or the Oriental churches say it a different way. And because of a kind of like ethnic and language barrier, there are, it seems like there's a deeper theological implication than what there really is. So the Eastern churches would say like, um, you know, he has, he's one person with two natures. He's one person who has the nature of divinity and the nature of humanity. And then they would say, right, he's both. And they're like, no, he's not both. He has this and this like, right. He's both. (laughs) Oh really? Oh, wow. and, and that's kind of how it ends up, like like splitting it because they don't. So have that like that split, which churches are split over that? The, you said the, or- so the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Oriental Orthodox churches. So those are two so different
0: kind of- Orthodox branches. That that's the in terms of the big umbrella Orthodox, and under that, the next umbrella would be Oriental and Eastern.
1: Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a okay, good way, a good way to put it. Okay, and so a lot of it, it goes back to this, you know, this Fourth Ecumenical Council. That they couldn't agree, that they couldn't figure okay. out how to agree on, and so in the Oriental churches, you're going to find churches like Ethiopian, Coptic, Indian, um, and and they they kind of do things just a little bit differently. But I've been to like a Coptic service before, and um, it's 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 the same thing basically. You know, it's like there's not a not a huge like I, I didn't see catch any like glaring theological yeah. problems when I went yeah. to a, you know a Coptic church. I was like, oh, you guys have the same creed, uh, you know, you do the same kinds of things that we do, maybe a little bit differently, but it's the same the same basic liturgy and it's beautiful. Um, and then you go to the Eastern Orthodox churches and there you would find things like the Greeks, the Russians, the Antiochians, the Jerusalem, all, all these different other kind of, um, okay. you know, the different instantiations of, of Orthodoxy. But a lot of that just mostly has to do with where things are kind of geographically centered and located mm-hmm. and the different music maybe and different iconography styles and yeah so the idea though is that all the eastern orthodox churches actually form one church so okay. even though they maybe have different bishops that are in charge of those churches kind of at a larger scale like the what we would call a patriarchate like that's the russian patriarchate um the you know the constantinople patriarchate all of this different stuff they are supposed to be working together as one council so that's i don't know Okay. Makes sense.
0: Kind of like if you had, I'm just trying to put in evangelical terms, like a multi-site campus that has campus pastors, but they're still under the overarching kind of overarching head elder board or something like that. Yes. They're supposed to work together, even though if you go to different ones, you're going to find some differences of nuance and probably some underlying, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm not too stoked about
1: that campus pastor there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just naturally, like a church in Southern California is going to look different than a church in Northern California. You know, like it is that kind of a thing.
0: Right. The weed in Northern California is pure, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, you mentioned, I think offline that there's, there's tension between the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox or there's, or
1: do they, are they? Yeah. And that, and that's a, I mean, that's kind of like a, a larger, a larger question that I don't super understand totally all the, all the nuances of, but I mean, even the stuff that's, you know, that's going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, like that, there's a big, um, a big religious component to that, you know, where, um, you know, Putin and, and Patriarch Kirill are kind of like hand in glove with this, with this thing and Mm. using each other's verbiage, you know, like a Russian world or a holy Russia, like kind of like this, this stuff to, um, justify the, the assault on Ukraine. Uh, whereas a lot of the other Orthodox patriarchs and stuff are like, no, this is bad. Like this, you should not be, be doing this. But one of the, I mean, this is this is really getting into the weeds and it's not it's you know, it's like weird family drama kind of stuff is what it sometimes sort of feels like. But the um, the patriarch of Constantinople, the so-called ecumenical patriarch, uh, recently, a couple of years back, granted to the Ukraine, the Ukrainian uh, patriarch, whatever, the sense of autocephaly. And that means that they're self-governing. But Ukraine was previously under Moscow. it's like it's just it's so it's so confusing right so to say you can govern yourselves moscow was like no they can't you can't do that you can't say that because they're you know under our Mm. thing and they were like well yeah we can say that and then there was a split over over that and again i don't really understand the ins and outs of it but well i would i would imagine
0: it sounds like the orthodox church has a lot of ethnic sociopolitical components to it that that's going to add a whole new layer of possible tensions and differences and stuff where like a more Westerner Protestant church typically doesn't it doesn't have those kind of strong ethnic sociopolitical ties as much. I mean uh, yeah. the American the American <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe maybe not <laughs> well. yeah I might yeah, walk that tough. one back a little bit.
1: <laughs> Maybe not explicitly on paper as much. <laughs> it just goes to show, I think, that any time that politics gets in bed with <laughs> with the, it's like yeah. it, no matter what, no matter what it looks like, um, right. it's yeah. gonna it's gonna interfere with the mission of the gospel, and it's, it's it just can't it can't not because you have too many, you know, nationalistic, yeah, like, uh, interests and in, in things like this that are directly. Yeah a threat to, you know, or the, the gospel is directly a threat to, you know? So, so that would be like, you, you would have probably,
0: I mean, every Christian was going to battle with this, but there's going to be explicit nationalistic tendencies built into the Russian Orthodox church is by definition.
1: I mean, you know, has, Yeah, ethnic allegiances. Yeah, it certainly is the danger. The danger for that. I think you know, orthodoxy in in America, at least, I think people don't want that to be the case. And I and I think that that was what a lot of people who um, have converted to orthodoxy have wanted to move away from, or like that's what at least the what the idea was that they would want to move away from some of those more ethnic or Mm -hmm. national um, identifiers. Um, But it's it's tough because you you know you you do sort of end up going to a church where people historically have been going because it came from the place that they were from. Right. You know, like when the Greeks immigrated or whatever, they brought their Greek Orthodox church with them and their Greek language with them and their Greek food with them Mm -hmm. and their Greek priests and their Greek bishops. And so it does kind of end up being this like, you know, like a little installment of of somewhere from home. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, like all of us, right. We get kind of tied to Mm -hmm. the wrong things and Begin to think that this is the same thing as following Jesus, and it's just not.
0: This is a, I guess, minor question, but you, I don't assume you're Greek. Gonzalez, last time I checked, is it a Greek. Does that yeah. an issue? You being a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, you ever feel like, well, you're not fully in, or no, it's not. That's not an issue. no.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay. never ever. Um, th- that which is funny because when I first started becoming Orthodox, I, you know, g- was, like read some books about how kind of exclusive, exclusionary the Greeks were and stuff like that, and. <laughs> and that has been the opposite of my experience. Like I, yeah, I know I have, I've loved being, um, like visiting different Greek Orthodox churches with my work and, Mm -hmm. um, just some of the most hospitable people, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who, who couldn't, who couldn't care less where, where I'm from or, uh, what my last name is. People have often made jokes, though, they'll be like, oh, your last name, Gonzalez, is that short, this is for short for Gonzalikis, right? Like, <laughs> <"No." laughs> Gonzalopoulos, actually. <That's> <laughs> what are some
0: main, like, big picture differences between the Greek Orthodox Church and a traditional American evangelical, let's just say EV free, you know, kind of middle of the road, evangelical, church, like uh, maybe theology, we can start theologically. Like what are some big, big picture stuff to like, here's some differences. And then, I mean, ultimately I would love to clear up any kind of misunderstandings that again, the average evangelical when they hear Greek Orthodox they are like, is that, wait, is that part of
1: Christianity? Like, or what is that, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. 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 So right out of the gate, we are Christians. (laughs) (laughs) We do. We, we, we believe in, in, in Jesus Christ crucified, uh, buried, risen from the dead, all of, all the, all the big things. Um, what we do, man, see, this is a, this is a good, a good question. Like, what are the big differences? Oh, I mean, there's, we already talked like liturgically and just what a service kind of looks like and and feels like. Um, but we, and I maybe want to drive this part home too, is that we, we fully reject the the penal substitutionary atonement theory. Like we just like 100% reject it. Um, that, you know, God is, God was not, uh, offended by our sin and needing to you know dole out punishment and have a perfect thing or a perfect being pay for that mm-hmm. um, it was much more that about being held captive by this con, you know this con, this contagion of death and sin okay. uh, that, that binds us and that what Christ comes to do is to restore mm-hmm. um, us to our proper our proper orientation with toward God our proper functioning. Um, that it has much less to do with getting off the hook somehow um, to avoid eternal punishment, yeah, um, and much more to do with just having our hearts renovated, having our minds restored, our eyes opened. You know, um, so I think that's a pretty a pretty big one. Um, I, I mean, of course, the the sacramental theology of the church is a hugely, hugely, hugely important component. I mean, it's, like I said, it's about everything that we do, I think, is this seeing Jesus or the Holy Spirit, God, Christ as everywhere present, filling all things. Um, and really, man, I, I think that what, at least what I've begun to realize, like that the the ascetic struggle of the Christian is in everything that we do. <sighs> do I feel confident saying this? I think I do. <laughs> that, that the big work of being a Christian is to come to know and trust and deeply believe that God loves you, huh. like the, that is what Orthodoxy invites you to. So, so, I just, so
0: that's a huge emphasis in Orthodox Church. And you would say, as you, if you go back to an you know, evangelical church, Orthodox Church, you're going to experience that um, motif a lot stronger in an Orthodox Church. I,
1: I think that's where you know where I've felt it because it's not just something that is given to you in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that is okay. given to you through your body. Right, like to taste, literally taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. Um, feel the smell, smell His love and in the incense. Um, feel it in the warmth of the candle. You know, like there's a, a lot of using the body. Um, like the body's role in in Orthodox worship is so so central um, to, to everything, and even the way that we are you know are supposed to think about our lives Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the Orthodox Church kind of the tradition is to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, like every Wednesday and Friday Oh really? Um, is a day of, yeah, to abstain from, and it's not like a total fast of like, don't eat anything, but it's like, don't eat meat, don't eat dairy, don't like just total vegan on Wednesdays and Fridays um, as a way, first of all, of commemorating, you know, the day that Christ is betrayed on Wednesday by Judas, uh-huh. and then Friday, the day that he's crucified. Um, so this is part of the ongoing life of, of the Orthodox Christian. Um, is to engage in prayer, fasting, almsgiving. I mean, this is like the stuff that is pushed down our throats again and again and again and again um, to to do those things. It's, it's much more about how we uh, engage the world with our bodies than just what we believe, you know? Okay, so it's more holistic. That's a, a
0: a good buddy of mine converted to the Orthodox Church several years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said it's just the biggest difference for him was this, the the emphasis on the holistic embodied nature of participation. Your all five senses are equally engaged, not just your ears and your mind and maybe your emotions, Mm -hmm. but it's like, yeah, your, your taste, your touch, your smell, um, everything it's, it's, it's very, you almost leave tired because your whole body's engaged in, in, in the rhythm of worship, which I, I find I'm kind of jealous of that. (laughs) Um, what about, um, the ecclesiological structure. So you guys, y'all don't have a Pope, right? Like, is that the big difference between you and the Catholic church? I also have a question about Mary and well, I, I do have a question about like the difference. Cause some people think Roman Catholic and Orthodox, they kind of lump them together. It's probably annoying, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, maybe let's go there. What, what are some differences between the Orthodox church and the Roman Catholic church?
1: Yeah. Um, so that is a good question. Ecclesiologically. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have a Pope, but we do have similar kind of structure, right? That there are, there's bishops and priests and deacons and lay people. So there is kind of a a much more like hierarchical kind of formation to how, how things play out. Um, but all the bishops technically are the same kind of level of ordination, but they are still kind of put into a kind of order or whatever to, uh, for the sake of, making decisions and getting things done, right? Like at the end of the day, like someone's got to be the one that puts the foot on the gas and decides like, okay, we're going. Um, But the difference between Orthodox and Catholic stuff is Catholics kind of have like the one guy who is at the top. Whereas again, in this kind of more conciliar model uh, in Orthodoxy, there's sort of a bunch of people at the top and they're supposed to function together as a council.
0: Is that like
1: archbishops or what's the, what is that? Yeah. So patriarch. So like the the, the patriarch. patriarch of yeah. Of do you have Antioch, to call the it, Do you have patriarch. to call him the patriarch
0: in a day when patriarchy is not <sighs> smiled upon? Yeah.
1: You know. <laughs> you know
0: I, don't, just, I don't. I don't. I don't. So I. I don't it mind is, I it because the term patriarch can be used many different ways, and I, I'm i fine with that. It's just in this day and age, yeah. and that word is just a little bit yeah. You know, I don't know. Loaded. Yeah. It's a thing.
1: <laughs> it's a thing. It's not not a thing. You know. Um <laughs> but yeah I mean, we, to that extent right we we the Orthodox Church doesn't make any any apologies for what it is. you know, it's like yeah, we That's are I like about a church, you guys. kind of what it is <laughs> yeah like you can you can you know, you can like it or leave it I guess it's is, it is what it is we we love you, you know, and think that there's probably a good place for you in this and and to be fair, like I do feel like Orthodoxy has a really beautiful rich, vision of of womanhood as well like i I don't think that it's just kind of like all right sit down and shut up and you know like don't talk in church and things like this even though um we don't practice female or woman ordination or anything like that you know we all of our clergy are are men how high up can a woman serve in in a leader can they serve in any kind of leadership role deacon or i mean so there's a lot of again, there's a lot of questions about about that. Historically, there were we know that there were you know women deacons, and there is kind of a, a grouping in in the church that is pushing for that again, um, to kind of bring back some of the female diaconate. But there's again, there's just a lot of questions I think that people have about exactly what that looks like, mm-hmm. and and means, and what it looks like historically and is it the same kind of one-to-one thing now or i don't know like there's just a lot of a lot of questions that people people have i think especially when they're trying to hold on and things are you know you look at you look at some of the maybe the more progressive traditions of christianity who are just kind of like doing doing anything uh and they're like well we don't want to do that (laughs) right we don't want to go like to the far side of things so we end up kind of holding on a little more tightly to some of our traditional way of doing things. Well, yeah, so. I
0: would imagine given it's strong ties to the geographic East, it's not going to be as Western egalitarian, just culturally like would that? I, mean, I would imagine that would play a, play a role. A lot of Eastern cultures from my knowledge don't have this allergic reaction to men leading only, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. for good or for ill. Yeah. I'm not saying that's. I'm just saying it's, it's a cultural thing that like when I travel to, um, yeah, I mean, I've been to these several times, in Nepal and other places, and it's like, sometimes it's a little startling how, you know, the women just kind of serve the men while the men sit around and eat and they wait hand and foot, on all the men, you know, and then they do all the dishes and, and it would be offensive. It'd be mm-hmm. profoundly offensive if I got up and said, hey, let me help out with the dishes or something, you know, like, or <laughs> yeah. hey, can you eat with us, dear woman? You know, like that would be appalling, you know, Um like get, get yeah. your Western ideas out of here kind of, you know, <laughs> like, oh, but then all that, I don't, I don't, and I don't, know. you know, I would, it'd be interesting to sit down with the women and say, do you feel dehumanized? Or if they feel like it's part of their culture and it's not, I don't know. That's, yeah. a, that's such an interesting, when, when do you, are your Western values intrinsically good <laughs> or are they just Western and just different? You know, um, I, I think people are really inconsistent with, especially people like the bag on the West, Western this, Western that, typically more progressive people. But then, yeah, I think they'd be really <laughs> appalled at some of the more Eastern cultural norms. Anyway, we're getting. So, so, so no Pope, more, more of a collective at the top. Um, mm-hmm. What about Mary?
1: Yeah, there's something about her. You know, like we, <laughs> we love her. Uh, she, <laughs> she is. Um, You know, I think that some of the rap that she gets, maybe even for people as they think about Catholicism as well, is that she serves as like a co-redemptrix kind of thing, like that somehow her suffering is essential to our own salvation or some something like this. Um, For the Orthodox, really, what she is is sort of the the perfect prototype of a Christian. That you you look at her and we see everything that kind of we are we're meant to be and to become. Mm. So Gabriel comes to her, says, The Lord has a plan for you, and she says, Yes. Let it be done. Like I Mm. Amen. Whatever it is, I want to say yes to the thing that you have for me. Even if it's like insane, even if it means that I could possibly get myself killed and stoned and divorced and whatever, all the different stuff, right? Like she Mm. just kind of says yes to what God has has for her and as a result the spirit descends on her and she literally has christ born in her mm-hmm. and this is exactly what we what we want as orthodox christians is to uh, to be united with the holy spirit hmm. to be in full communion and union with god so that christ can be born in us um, and that is like i mean what else is there so know? she so kind it, of is a symbol mm-hmm. of the ideal Christian by,
0: by literally having christ born in through a womb, yeah. That's a symbol for Christ being in all of us.
1: Yes, exactly. Wow. And so, when you walk into like pretty much any Orthodox church, um, you'll see behind the altar a big. I wish that I, I wish that I had one. Um, a big icon of of Mary, like is, is what it looks like that she's just behind the altar with her arms mm. stretched out, often, and sitting kind of in her lap or in her womb is the Christ Child. Mm. And as we look at that, it's easy. It might be easy to think like, oh, these people like worship worshiper <laughs> she's like displaying such a right. prominent you know place in this church but really what you're looking at is this is the icon of the church this is here. like here is the church as a mother christ in her in her womb facilitating the birth of christ in all of us really is is the thing that the the, the church is to act as that womb in which christ is formed yeah. in us so in which so we are formed into christ
0: would it be inaccurate to say the eastern church worships mary is that
1: not true It would be, it would be indeed one hundred percent inaccurate to to say that. You know, it's yeah for sure. Would would that be true? The Catholic Catholic Church,
0: you know. So, are there differences between the role of Mary in in both churches, or have Western have evangelicals misunderstood the role of Mary in both? Churches.
1: Yeah, I think I think generally speaking, evangelicals have misunderstood the role of Mary in in both churches. I think she she often more acts as a again like the the prototypical model of okay. of faith and being a Christian. Um, I do I think that there might be a little bit more of a sense of again my my own kind of interaction with Catholicism is is limited. So it'd probably be better to ask a, a Catholic exactly what they sure. think. But from what I understand, again, there is a sense of. Um, at least something of what her mother's heart goes through watching Christ crucified plays some sort of redemptive role, um, in, in the salvation of humankind. And I don't, I don't know okay. exactly yeah. what or how, but yeah. yeah. And w-
0: okay. What about uh, a couple more things? Um, the Eucharist, what's the, the Eucharist is, uh, how would you, what's the word to, to describe the Eastern view of the Eucharist and then because it's not quite Roman Catholic, right? I mean, it's kind of one step away.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Roman Catholic once removed, exactly. Um, so, the, yeah, the Catholics would use the word transubstantiation, right? Like that, yeah. that, that, that the substance of the, of the bread and wine uh, changes, that it is no longer bread and wine, but is yeah. the, the body. body and blood of, of Christ, which is kind of a way of trying to explain how it can, but it maintains the appearance kind of of bread and wine. For us, we would say no. It's absolutely bread and wine, and it is the real body and blood of Christ. That's kind so. It's of consubstantiation, kind of, or or yeah, I think that that's probably a closer word than that we that would define it. But I don't think you would ever find any like Orthodox theologian who would ever use the word consubstantiate. Okay. Um, it's it's kind of the word that we tend to use for all of these things is mystery. You know, like how is it that it's a mystery. You know, but but what we really do believe is that again, this heavenly spirit is everywhere present, filling all things, including this bread and this wine, in such a way that it is a very real participation in the body and blood of Christ. How it is how it does that? I don't know, but like that's the transforming act of God. That's the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which to me is not is really not Again, having grown up charismatic and Pentecostal, I'm like, I'm totally down on that. Like, yeah, yeah the Holy yeah. Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Like, I've seen people roll around on the floor. Like, of course yeah. he can take bread and wine and <laughs> make make it a real participation in his own uh, presence. Like, why do I think that's weird? You know, it, if it's Je- that, Jesus says this is my body, I believe uh, that.
0: Okay. Wait, wait, but that's cannibalism. No, it's not. But you said it's his body. <laughs> yeah, mystery. <laughs> so exactly. it's, that, it's that mystery piece that I, I do. I resonate with that. And it, does, it just doesn't, when... When I read in Scripture things that seem in tension with each other, it just doesn't bother me. Uh, for a, for example, um, uh, is God sovereign and um, oversees all things, knows the end from the beginning? Yes. Does prayer change things and move God? Yes. And people say, well, you can't have it both ways. I'm like, the Bible says both. Because yeah, why not? Because, <laughs> because you prayed, Hezekiah, therefore I am going to do X, Y, and Z because you prayed, uh, the prayer of the righteous person availeth much accomplishes much is strong and inactive. It does something. James five, um, God knows the end from the beginning. He's the alpha and the Omega. the book of Isaiah, basically. Um, and I can hold both true. And I don't need, does it make sense to me? No, it doesn't. I mean, I don't, but it doesn't bother yeah. me. Like I don't need to, did God choose you? You chose
1: him. Have you, have sure. you seen, yeah. uh, that the Marvel show Loki, did you no. watch Loki? I no, I want to watch it. I like Loki. So it's good. It, it, it plays a lot with like multiverse and timelines and stuff okay. like this. And and I think part of the problem we run into is that like we're way more tied to what we think the sacred timeline is than God is. You know, like God, huh. like, like God, I think for him, all things are possible and therefore exist in his mind as reality. You know, like he like every uh, with what is impossible for man is possible for God. So God knows every possibility. Mm-hmm, he knows mm-hmm. whether I'm gonna turn right or left. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Or he knows what will happen if I turn right, or he knows what would happen if I turn left. Hmm. So does he know, he knows the end of all things, whether I go right or left. So um, is there some sense that like, yeah, that he knows, it's just, I don't, I just don't know that there's one timeline that we, Hmm, like we're so limited in how we think about time, you know, but there's an infinite possibility of things that could happen. And God just happens to know all of them, I think. Yeah, and I'm just, (laughs) I just
0: not, I don't know. Like I used to be, I, I used to have these systems where it's like, Okay, what system does God fit it? And I just don't anymore, and it doesn't bother me. Even like things within the biblical story that don't really make sense. The conquest is brutal, dude. Like, and I know I can give you all the theological answers of why it's not genocide and all this stuff, and it's still brutal, dude. And and it's like, yeah, I don't particularly yeah, resonate with that part of it the story, a like
1: genocide.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, well, yeah, there's parts of the biblical story that. Yeah, I have questions about and and don't really resonate with. I kind of like, oh man, that, that's a little jarring. But as a whole, it's the best story told compared to all the other options because all the other options have more, I think, <laughs> more questions and holes and nihilistic conclusions and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the best. It's the most beautiful of all the stories. But there's still lots of stuff I don't understand, and I'm I'm just I'm okay with that. Not some days are harder than yeah. others, you know. But um, well, okay. What what the, the afterlife? What what's your so. Heaven, new creation, hell what's hell like is that um I, I was told that orthodoxy allows for kind of all three generally speaking versions of hell e c t annihilation universalism is that is that true or do you guys even really talk about it much or
1: yeah, so th- this is this is a really great fun conversation <laughs> <laughs> you know like is always ah i just conversations of afterlife are always really fun um, <clears throat> however, I think that probably before I get to like the, you know, eternal conscious torment and stuff, all of the annihilationism, whatever. um, The, I think the primary thing, again, for Orthodox Christians would be to start from the divine liturgy and what happens in the liturgy in the beginning that we're told, uh, again, the priest holds the gospel overhead and says, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever and to the end of the ages. Amen. Uh, And so there is this proclamation from the beginning that whatever whatever else wherever else whatever we see whatever happens it's going somewhere good like we we know that for sure that the kingdom of god is coming that it's already here that it's at hand it's in our midst you know that that the good news of the gospel is not that we go to heaven when we die the good news of the gospel is that god has already come to man to like on earth like that's that is the good news it's it's not a story of us going To have a story of God coming to man, um, which is a really beautiful story. And therefore, you know, that that kingdom reality is one that we can live in now and here and always, Um, even after we die. That is just the the fundamental reality that we often don't see or um, or are aware of. You know, again, did you see free guy? No, give me, I, I gotta write this oh, down. I
0: got I gotta, I gotta she, Google jumping worms and free guy yeah. and Loki. <laughs> busy gotta, after this, I, so you <laughs> got the
1: the guy with the pop culture podcast like on here talking. <laughs> it's just the best way that I can think of things. Anyway, uh, forget free guy, but okay. it make, it would, I don't want to explain too much because that's beside the point. Um, but that's the fundamental building block of everything is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So if we can wrap our minds around that, that is the reality that is coming, no matter what that we can't fight the flow of that, that there's no stopping it. Um, Then uh, we can kind of see that that thing is supposed, that that reality is supposed to permeate everything. Again, heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present, filling all things. And so at least the story that I had been given growing up about hell was like, that's where you go when you're banished from the presence of God, Mm -hmm. right? Like you've done something so so bad over the course of your 70 years of life that he wants to torture you forever now mm-hmm. like now you're gonna to be tortured forever like forever forever and you know when you have it kind of put in those in those terms of like wow so th- those 70 years on earth that I had and now I'm gonna to be tortured forever mm-hmm. like it's kind of a hard thing to even morally grab your like m- put your head around right I mean imagine as a parent, right? You're, th- is there something that's so bad that your child would do that you would say, now you need to go into your room for the rest of your life. Hmm. You can never, ever, ever come out of there, no matter how sorry you are, no matter how, whatever, that's it. You blew it. You had one chance. And I'm going to torture up. you in your room. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. I love you. So it, it's because I love you that yeah. I'm
0: torturing you. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. It's, yeah, and it really, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't feel good, especially because the whole thing is that, like, we believe that his presence is everywhere, filling all things. So, where can I go to get away from him? Where can I be sent away from the presence of God? Um, it doesn't—it doesn't really follow, kind of, with what we believe everything else about about God. So, I do think that probably where a lot of Orthodox Christians would find themselves is that uh, the solidarity of of Jesus as God with humankind is such that every single human person, by virtue of being human and by virtue of Christ's being human, are bound together forever. That there's no, you can't untie that knot. You know, that when when Christ assumes humanity, he assumes all of humanity. Mm. There isn't some humanity that he doesn't take on. He took it all on. Mm -hmm. So my humanity, your humanity, my wife's humanity, my children's humanity, all of it is held together in Christ because of, you know, that fancy word, the hypostatic union,
0: Yeah,
1: right? Because in his person, divinity and humanity, God and man, mm-hmm. dwell together inseparably. You can't separate the two anymore.
0: They're so so are you saying like an some form of ultimate reconciliation is the dominant
1: kind of view of the afterlife in, in orthodoxy or? So I think that, you know, ultimate reconciliation in terms of kind of like the universal salvation kind of stuff like that. That's, I mean, there's, there's definitely some, some scholars in Orthodoxy, like David Bentley Hart, who kind of make a pretty strong argument for, Mm -hmm. for, for ultimate reconciliation. But then you get guys like Metropolitan Kalisto's Ware, who say that we should hope for ultimate reconciliation and kind of hold on to that. Um, but I, I think that what you would see is that there ultimately is a, um, every, Every human person is somehow bound to, to God. There's no un, unbinding the human person from God at this point because of the incarnation, because of Christ's resurrection. That death, has to be. Resurrection. All, is
0: there anything other than ultimate reconciliation when you frame it that way? I mean, what would be the other option? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So maybe the best, maybe the way to think about it would be like the the parable of the prodigal son, that the older brother doesn't know his father, even though he's still a member of the family and he's in the family, he's choosing to remove himself from the feast. He's choosing to stand outside of the party um, because he does he does uh, not want to embody the same mercy as his father, even though. And so to this to him now, like that experience of his brother being found is sort of like a hellish experience. So right? the the father is still bound to the son, but the son is
0: choosing to be separate from his father. So that would kind of like Lewis. The hell is locked. The door is locked from the inside. Is, is he the one? Yes. That, Something like that, that that, that it is possible to keep yourself separated from God, but God's not going to banish you forever, even though you're kicking and screaming and wanting to come out of the torture chamber,
1: you know? Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He loves you. So like the idea of, you know, like, have you ever had like a weird aunt or uncle that like, like wanted to hug you? Several. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you're like, "Ah," like, like you're, (laughs) you, you don't really want them to, but they love you, you know, but you like, don't really like want to be close to them because they <laughs> kind of weird you out. Um, I think that maybe is a, like the experience that we, that we have, but there's other people who love that aunt or uncle and mm-hmm. hugging them is like a really warm, comforting embrace. But for others, it burns like the fire of Gehenna, you know? Like, so how, how, how would an Orthodox
0: interpret like all the many judgment passages, the, the, the lake of fire and um, Matthew 25 and, you know, would they say that those are, real threats that God through Jesus has overcome or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that they're, you know, they're really, and again, this is, there's, there's room for, for pretty much any way to to talk about like, you know, so, like in terms of afterlife stuff, um, as long as we're st- standing on the fact that like it's Christ's work that ultimately saves everybody. Um, but Matthew 25, for example, is I think a really, a really great example of like, what it looks like to live in the, in the, in the Lord's kingdom, right? That like his kingdom that is built on justice and righteousness for him, you know, to have a King who identifies with the poor, Mm -hmm. you know, the hungry, the thirsty, the, the, the sick, the imprisoned. And if you also identify with the poor, you go to them, you're with them Mm -hmm. and you're not like turned off by them somehow, Mm -hmm. then like, that's the kind of King kingdom. That's going to be a good, happy place for you. Mm-hmm. But like if you, because they're there, they're there with you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but if you're disgusted and repulsed and ignore the poor and ignore the needy and you refuse to acknowledge the king, then being in his kingdom is going to be pretty terrible, you know, and it probably is going to feel like you're in a lake of fire um, because, you know, who I like to be king in my life me, like I like to be the king of my life. And so if someone else comes in and this kingdom is coming, no matter what, like that feels like an invasion Mm -hmm. that feels like a conquest. Uh, and even though it might be this kingdom of love, it certainly doesn't feel that way when, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm so bent in on myself and want things my way. Um, but there, there is certainly, even I think with like the, the universalists, um, you will see that like they do, they take the judgment and the the punishment stuff really seriously really? Oh, you know yeah. that there is still going to be yeah. a chastening you know because at the end of the day like you gotta you're rewarded for what you do or not what you do but are you saved by that I mean mm-hmm. First Corinthians I think it's what's chapter 3 right like the fire will test each man's work yeah. and uh, for some like they'll receive a reward if they built with jewels and gold and uh, mm-hmm. other people like their house will be burned up but they themselves will be saved is right. what that says it's like well I don't know mm-hmm. what you do with <laughs> You know, I just, just I
0: just, um, <laughs> it was going to get me in trouble, but it's definitely not the first time I think, I don't know, maybe not. Um, I, I was, I just recorded a Q and a podcast and one of the first question was, Preston, can you argue from scripture for universalism? Um, can you make a scriptural argument? And I said, yeah, I can. And I proceeded to argue it for 10, 15 minutes, um, and left it at that. I'm like, I'm not going to counter argue it because yeah. I think some of these arguments are actually pretty, you know, pretty compelling, um, um, it, that podcast uh, recorded yesterday is going to come out from this recording, I'm recording this on Tuesday. It's going to come out on Thursday, which when people are listening to this now, they've already heard it. So it's weird time, kind of like the time, <laughs> the different time, you know, <laughs> where, where are we right now? Yeah, um, fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, I, it, it's, 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 it's intriguing to me that the, the scriptural, some of the scriptural arguments for universalism are more compelling than people than evangelicals, I think, realize. You know, um, it's not just. I mean, you know, people say I'm a hopeful universalist. I, I guess most of us would say, of course. That's emotionally, we would all want to be. We should, should all, I think, want to be a universalist on some level. Um, but it, you know, the Bible's prevented me from doing that. But in in you know, I would say I, th- I think annihilation, from my perspective, has the overwhelming. Um, case for it biblically, but universalism does. I, you know, I've said this before, and I, you know, I'm surprised people haven't hammered me on this. But I think the scriptural case for universalism far outweighs scriptural case for ECT. Just biblically, not. I'm not talking yeah. emotional. I'm yeah. saying I can I can construct several arguments for universalism just biblically, even if I was appalled by the doctrine. But just. You know, in Adam all died, therefore in Christ all will be made alive. We interpret the first all as all humanity. <laughs> as so the all. burden of proof yeah. rests on us to say the second all does not mean what the first all means. Um, mm. God consigned it sounds, all to it sounds disobedience. Like that's what he's
1: talking about, but that's not what Paul really meant. <laughs> yeah. No, he didn't really mean. God consigned all
0: to disobedience so that he would have mercy on all in Romans 11 32. And, um, yeah, it's. Fa- I haven't read David Bentley Hart. Is he so? He's orthodox. Is that? I haven't uh-huh. read his book. Yeah, he, I mean,
1: he's he wrote a book that is like purely about uh, universal yeah. reconciliation uh, that all shall be saved. Yeah, yeah. No, if, um, it's yeah. on my reading list, but um, yeah, it's wild, man. It's a it's a wild read. You read it, and you know, it's it's hard to not walk away from that, being like, is he right? Is it is <laughs> it know, is like, it compelling? I, I, oh yeah, yeah. It's very 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 okay. compelling. I mean I've, yeah, I'm, i' mean, i'm just, i'm I'm
0: used to the work of Robin Perry, who wrote The Evangelical Universalist and wrote the four views on Hellbook that I edited. He wrote the Universalism chapter in it, and it's it's pretty responsible exegetically. <laughs> i mean i I push yeah. back and I still have like there's so certain arguments I'm like, ah, I, I here's reasons why I don't find my yeah. other ones. I'm like.
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, and I, and I think for, like for me, like one of the, one of the things that is you know the most compelling part of all of it, and and this to me is is where orthodoxy I think shines, um, is in terms of leading leading with beauty, you know, like it, we lead with a beautiful vision and a beautiful imaginary and a beautiful mm-hmm. um, uh, service, whatever. And to me, like when you look at the three kind of like primary stances yeah. of like. You know, eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, and universal reconciliation. One of them outshines the other two <laughs> as beautiful more than any other thing. And That's
0: the exact wording that my other Eastern friend used. This is the mm-hmm. more beautiful way. Is that is that like a an Eastern
1: I, theme? Well, I think that if you're if you're in the if you're in the Orthodox world, it's hard it's hard not to start thinking in terms of like, does this is this beautiful or not?
0: But you isn't know, like, isn't that
1: this is going to sound so
0: traditional evangelical? But I just have to ask it. Like, isn't that what does it matter what I, as a fallen human, think is beautiful? I think you know um, the girls on Baywatch are beautiful. I think um, I, I think um, uh, the movie Gladiator is is beautiful. I think Napoleon Dynamite's a beautiful movie. Other people <laughs> think it's ridiculous. You know, like beauty's so subjective. Like, how can we form a theology based on what me as an individual think is? Beautiful, because some things I think are beautiful are actually pretty atrocious. You know, I don't know. Oh man, like, is, this that, is I don't know? Great, is that, is
1: this that is such a fun conversation? What am I, I missing
0: it? here? Like I, I yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: So I think that one of one of the things, and this is where, um, you know, you can you look at the Gospel of John, and the first words that Jesus says to his disciples, or to the ones who are following him, right? Like the disciples of John the Baptist followed Jesus, and he turns around and he asks them, "What do you want?" Like, what do you want? He doesn't ask them, what do you think? What do you believe? What do you feel? It's like this question of desire and longing. Hmm. And I think ultimately desire and longing only like those things are, they have to be awakened by beauty. And so if Jesus is asking for, you know, uh, what these people want, what they're actually longing for, then the question of of beauty, I think, is the next one that follows. It's like, what is the beautiful thing that's drawing you toward that? Hmm. So when you want to be, Um, you know, when you see your wife and you want to give her a hug, Mm -hmm. like, what do you want when you want to hug her? It's not just that you want to hug her, right? Like there's something that you want when you hug her. It's like, I want closeness. I want unity. I want union. I want comfort. I want Mm -hmm. something like there's, and these are beautiful things, Mm. but like we don't want them from a place of thinking that comfort is a good don't have like, Oh, I think I need some comfort today. It's like this instinctual drive that beauty awakens in us, right? You see your wife and she's like looking real good mm-hmm. and you want to go over like, it's the beauty that first leads you to her. It's the beauty that we are. It's not like a beauty only, but it's certainly beauty yeah. first. Is, is it, would that be a big difference between orthodoxy
0: and maybe traditional, maybe more reformed evangelicalism is you would have a more sanctified view of human desire and beauty, whereas maybe some forms of evangelical would emphasize the fallen nature. And if it's desire, like they would say, yeah, you want to go hug your wife because you want something else. Actually, that's probably really self-serving, you know, or the the assumption that your desire is going to be lead to negative places where orthodoxy would have a, maybe a more beautiful, like a less, I mean, you have a version of the fall, right? Or, or no? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, you have a fallen anthropology, but it, would you say it's not that's not as central to your anthropology as it is in evangelicalism? Or,
1: yeah, no, that, that's that's a, again a really good, a really good question. So, kind of out of the gate, I would just say, in terms of like our engagement with Reformed theology, we, we reject all five points of, of Calvin, <laughs> like of Calvinism. All five. Is <laughs> they're, they're all out the window. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) So we, so we don't believe, we don't have a four and a half, four and (laughs) a (laughs) half. No, no. Um, yeah. So total depravity. No. I mean, how could, how could anything made in the image of God be totally, totally depraved?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Like it doesn't make any, it is like, no way. Like we're good. Are we, and I would still say orthodoxy still believes that humanity is essentially good. Like, yeah, we uh, are still good. (laughs) even though maybe we are fallen and disordered and confused, but we still can't. And this is even like Bentley Hart makes this argument a little bit in his book that we still can't help, but want the good. We still want the good. It's just that sometimes our perception of what is good is messy. Right. So um, maybe a good way to think about it uh, would be like when Okay. So our sins, the things that we do at least as again as like an evangelical kid, I remember thinking like there are basically like three things that you can do that are really like sins. You can like look at pornography, mm-hmm. you can kill somebody, um and like you can like rape somebody. Like those are like the those are like the, the big 3 kind of I in mean, drugs. Like drugs are also yeah, like yeah. a really a really bad thing. But lying, you know, like that's uh you know, it's kind of a bad thing. Um but even questions of like you know, when you start to get into orthodoxy, you start hearing words like vainglory. Yeah. And you're like, like, what, what's that? And it's like, well, it's really caring what other people think of you. Hmm. And it's like, uh, what's, but what's wrong with that? Like, shouldn't we all kind of care? What, wouldn't we all be so, sort of like psychopaths and sociopaths? We didn't kind of care what people hmm. think about us. Um, but the idea of this being like, okay, so what am I hoping to find by really making sure that I impress you, Preston? Well, I'm going to take that to mean something about me that I'm the kind of person who is impressive and good. And I start believing a lie that I am what you think about me. I am how you feel about me. Mm. I am how you see me. But in reality, I am the beloved child of God. I am a creation of God. I'm already valued and loved and wanted and all of this kind of stuff. But I start misplacing my trust and my ability to win you over. And when I do that, I'm already walking in death. I'm already walking in sin because I have stepped away from mm-hmm. kind of finding ultimate goodness in God. And that, and that really is the big thing that gets Adam and Eve in trouble in the very beginning is you know God says, "Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness." So the whole point of making humankind is to make them like him. Like that's the whole purpose that he like I want to make these people like me. And so when they go and they see the fruit and the snake says to them uh, to Eve more precisely, God just knows that when you eat of this, you're going to be like him. Well, what's the problem with that? Isn't that why God made Adam and Eve to be like them? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that they start trusting in creation to give them that. Mm. Trusting in this other thing to make them like God and not in God himself. And and that that is where we start to fall away. So the things that we want, like, was it bad for Adam and Eve to want to be like God? No, Mm. it wasn't. Like That was actually a desire that God gave them. Because that was why he made them, to make him like himself. But because they kind of took things into their own hands and decided, this is how I'm going to make myself be like God. Mm-hmm. That's where we start getting into some of like, you know, a different anthropology. But ultimately, it's still these, these good desires that we've been given for, you know, love, purity, um, value to identity, purpose, mm-hmm. security, joy, power comfort. Like these are like peace, right? These are all things that God has given us a desire for, for goodness. But it's when we start trusting in ourselves mm-hmm. to provide those good things that we yeah. start to do real bad stuff. It's good, man. You're making a compelling
0: case. I'm almost, uh, maybe nearly converted. I'm like a Gentile God <laughs> uh, Could, could I, could, okay. Could I be a member as a member of the Orthodox church? If I was a five point, Calvinists who believe in penal substitution, like, is there room for like, Hey, here's what the church believes, but you can be part of the church and have doctrinal differences. Or do you have to like, is it one of those where you have to like really on paper line up with what the church teaches?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. So there's not like a statement of faith that you have to like sign when you, you know, when you come in, but Mm -hmm. I, I, there is of course like the, you know, the, the Nicene Constantinople creed that you have to like agree with, you know, Mm -hmm. and be like, yeah, I do believe, I believe in all of those things. Um, and I, I don't think, see, this is what's interesting is I don't think that anybody who is a five point Calvinist would want to be Orthodox. Like, I, like, I just don't think that it would jive because you would hear things that are not five point Calvinism. You know, you wouldn't hear like sermons about the total depravity of of humankind and, and you wouldn't hear, you know, anything about double predestination and you, like, you just wouldn't hear like any of that stuff. So you would already kind of reject it out of the gate. Um, but I, I, there is, there is plenty of, of room for other like questions, you know, of ways of seeing things. I mean, even this question of universal salvation, there's people who will say it's a heresy. It's not officially a heresy of the church. No. Um, so
0: I mean, Greg, it, Gregory it, it, of, um, Nyssa, N- Nyssa, one of the main architects of the Nicene Creed, the author of like orthodoxy,
1: you know, across the board is a universalist. So totally. Um, and you yeah. get like Isaac of Nineveh and, you know, a bunch of other guys all throughout the course of our yeah. history who have, who have continually found themselves in, in that same line yeah. um, and are deeply orthodox because right, right. there's a lot of gray area. You know, mm-hmm. there's like you can't believe outside of this box, but mm-hmm. that box is pretty big. <laughs> I, I would say uh, personally I am an anomaly in that I actually
0: like being in environments with different theological emphases because I assume – that I have wrong theology. Like I, I obviously I have blind spots. The Only way I'm, I'm going to know that is if I'm exposed to alternative viewpoints and it forces me to think and reflect on my theology. So, um, if, even if I was, um, mm-hmm. that's why I went to five point Calvinist, I, I would actually probably be okay with being in that environment, but, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where I'm on all that stuff anymore, but, um, it just doesn't interest. I don't know. Those questions don't interest me anymore. So I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, Yeah. Well, dude, I've taken you way past your time and I have to go. I wish we uh, could go longer. I know I do Great. too, but I actually have to go to the bathroom and I have to go <laughs> try to go to the gym. So in that order, yeah. <laughs> is it leg, leg day, Yeah, leg day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah. I, I try to, if, if I know I'm going to have like a high calorie meal, which I'm not sure I'm going to have that. I try to go do legs cause that usually gets my metabolism going. So my wife and I, we've been doing, um, so she was born and raised in France, and so and we've been back oh, several cool. times. And so we both, my wife and I, love like the real aggressive French cheeses. You know, like a, a real <laughs> stiff blue. Some some of the ones that people like it makes the whole room smell. So we get a good bottle of wine, some good olives, pickles, like the, the the real spicy pickles, some good cheeses. So we've been doing that almost every other night. But man, that bunch of cheese and bread and wine—that's <laughs> not <laughs> – <laughs> surprisingly though. Like the French are really they're not overweight, you know, and they eat bread all the time and f- desserts and cheese, but I don't know, it's I think it's the pace of the meal, they walk a ton. Um they don't typically overindulge like Americans do. Um so I don't know. Um Yeah.
1: Bicycles and cigarettes, man. Bicycles and cigarettes. <laughs> Bicycles
0: and cigarettes. <laughs> 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 uh, hey, it was great getting to know you, bro. I uh, really appreciate Likewise. it. Thanks for the uh thanks for the Greek Orthodox one-on-one lesson.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This was great.
0: Take care, man.